0: For our New Testament scripture reading, I will be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17 through chapter 5 and verse 5. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Let us give heed to the word of God. This is God's very inspired and inerrant word. And he speaks to us, even though it is clear he is speaking through a prophet or an apostle. It is God himself who gives us this message. Therefore I say this, and testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God, as dearly loved children, and walk in love, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral, or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I invite you now to turn in your Bible to Psalm 4, which is our passage for the message today. Psalm 4. Let us hear the word of God. For the choir director, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still, Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. Let us pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit may take these wonderful truths of your word and use them to encourage our hearts and also to awaken us to our sins to grant us confession and humility, and to grant us Your grace that we may walk more and more in a way that honors and pleases You and that rejoices in Your glorious presence. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The heading of Psalm 4 does not identify the historical background for this psalm but we should note that psalms 3 and 4 are very closely linked by their vocabulary and themes the word for foe in psalm 3 in verse 1 and the word for affliction in Psalm 4 and verse 1, are very closely related in the Hebrew. We can translate these words as afflictors and afflictions. Literally, Psalm 3.1 says, Lord, how greatly those who afflict me are multiplying. And Psalm 4.1 says, You freed me from my affliction. The word glory appears in both Psalm 3.3 and 4.2. Psalm 3.3 says, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory. Note that David identifies God as his glory, what he glories in. And what brings honor and glory to him, the Lord. And he says in 4.2, How long, sons of men, will my glory be insulted? This suggests that his opponents were insulting David's God, although they were also likely insulting David's honor. Psalm 3.3 3 and 4.6 both refer to God as the one who lifts up or encourages God's people. Psalm 3.3 3 calls God the one who lifts up my head. Why is our head down? Because we're downcast, we're, we're in despair, we're discouraged. God lifts up our head and causes us to smile and rejoice. And Psalm 4, 6 is a prayer. Lift up the light of your face on us, Lord, that our faces may be bright and full of light with your joy and your presence and your care. Psalm 3, 4 and 4, 1 and 4, 3 speak of David calling on God with an assurance that he will hear and he will answer Psalm 3.3 3 says, I called with my voice to the Lord, and He answered me. Psalm 4, one pleads, answer me when I call. And, and 4.3 rests in the assurance that the Lord will hear when I call to Him. And in both... 3, 5, and 4, 8, the themes of lying down, sleeping, and trusting in the Lord occur. Psalm 3, 5 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again because the Lord is sustaining me. And 4, 8 says, I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, cause me to live in safety. Because of these many similarities, commentators have frequently referred to Psalm 3 as a morning prayer and Psalm 4 as an evening prayer. And many Christians have made it a habit to pray Psalm 3 in the morning and Psalm 4 in the evening. In summary, we know from the heading of Psalm 3 that David wrote that psalm when he faced An attack from Absalom, his son, who is bringing a large army to kill David and his followers and to seize the throne of Israel. But when David awakes on the morning of that battle, very possibly on the morning of the day of battle, David in Psalm 3 expresses his confidence that God will fulfill his promise, that David will reign as God's king. And now in Psalm 4, apparently at the end of that day after the battle, we see that God delivered David from his affliction and that God vindicated David's just cause. Psalm 4 goes on to say that David is now able to sleep in peace, for God has enabled him to live in safety and in security. Both psalms appear to be set in the time of the civil war in Israel. Psalm 3 on the morning before the battle and Psalm 4 on the evening after the battle. And that day was incredibly significant because both the life of David and the continuance of the Messianic kingdom hung in the balance on that day. Now it is not necessary for us to know the historical background to the psalm in order for us to greatly profit from it. But it can increase our awareness of what David himself was facing when God inspired him to write these prayers. And it also helps us to more appropriately apply these prayers to our own trials and afflictions in life. The first verse of Psalm 4 contains an appeal to God for help. David prays Answer me when I call, O God, who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David is crying out to God. And he is certain that God will hear. David is confident that God will again hear and answer his prayer. Because God just did hear. He did hear and he did answer his prayer. 2 Samuel 18.7 tells us, that the battle on that fateful day claimed 20,000 lives of Israelites. But the life of God's appointed king, David, and the Messianic kingdom that God had set up through David, they were both preserved. Absalom's army was completely broken. And Absalom himself, the one who had planned to kill David, and all who were with him, Absalom was dead. So David rightly calls God, the God who vindicates me, or literally, the God of my righteousness. God had heard David's call for help and delivered him. God had shown David, shown David's cause to be just and had protected him from Satan's plot against him. But David has more things to pray for. And notice that this psalm is not a psalm of celebration over the enemy. David appears to be praying for the reunion of the people of God and the restoration of the kingdom of God. He prays, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He prays to the Lord who he knows is righteous and all-powerful and who is able to bring about the reunion of a divided and alienated people and to bring about the restoration of God's rule in the hearts of these people. Verses 2-5 through five now show us an appeal to opponents to reflect and trust in the Lord. Yes, David and God's people on earth had been preserved, but there was a great and terrible loss of life in Israel that day. The good thing about it was that God had judged and removed the wicked and rebellious who rose up against God and against his appointed king on that day. The terrible thing about it was that there were many Israelites who had lost loved ones that day. And verse 2 implies that there were those in the kingdom who still questioned the rule of David. David says to them, How long, exalted ones... Will my honor be insulted? Or perhaps, will my glory, namely my God, be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Namely, the lies of Absalom that you listen to. We should take note that while we saw the words enemies, and wicked, and anger, and wrath, and judgment, and perish, We saw all these words, and we saw the theme of God striking and breaking the wicked in Psalms 1 and 2 and 3, yet none of these words occur in Psalm 4. And that is significant. David addresses all the Israelites in a gracious way in Psalm 4, including those who were insulting him and insulting his God. He does not pray for their destruction. He pleads with them to reconsider their opposition to him, God's anointed king. He pleads with them to follow the Lord God. David is speaking to the visible church. And granted, they are a mixed multitude. And it may be that some will yet even still reveal themselves to be enemies of God and God's kingdom. But David pleads with all of them to repent of their opposition to God's messianic kingdom. And he pleads with them to support him, David, the king that God had set over them. David reminds them that God has entered into a very special relationship both with his anointed king and with everyone who trusts in the Lord. He reminds them, reminds them that God cares for His people, and God will always, always hear their prayers. He says in verse 3, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for Himself. The Lord will hear when I call to Him. David goes on in verses 4 and 5 to say, Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. That initial phrase, be angry, sounds like we are commanded to get angry. And sometimes there are things that are very sinful, and we ought to be angry that sin is taking place. But God is not commanding us here to be angry over sin that comes out of us, but rather sin that we see being done. And this can be translated, when you are angry, when you are angry, do not sin. Do not let your anger cause you to sin. Even when you see things that are sinful, don't let that cause you sin. To sin yourself. There are times when it is appropriate to be angry. When we are angry about our sin. Or about the evil of men that we see. Or when God is being dishonored. But we have to admit that most of our anger, probably something like 99% of our anger, uh, is for sinful reasons. We are sinfully angry. And we ought not to be angry. We are angry that we didn't get from someone what we wanted, what we expected. Uh, we, we are angry that God did not give us what we wanted or what we expected. We are angry that God allowed things to happen to us that we didn't want to happen to us. No doubt there were many in Israel who had believed Absalom's lies about David Or had lost a loved one who supported Absalom. And they were angry. But David warns them not to allow their anger to lead them into sin or rebellion. He tells them to consider, to ponder, to reflect on what God has said and done. And to remain silent or still. He urges them to join with the faithful worshipers who come to the tabernacle to offer their sacrifices to the Lord in worship. And so, too, we should not allow our anger, whether it might be righteous anger or sinful anger, we should not allow that to pull us away from the Lord. Many times it is in a situation where something goes very wrong in the life of a person or in their family or in their church that people become angry, but usually they're not angry for God's righteousness. Many times they're angry against God. That God in His sovereignty would see fit to allow this, that this would be part of God's put good purposes, and they can't accept that, and they walk away from the Lord, or they walk away from their family, or they walk away from the church. We must be careful. Anger is something Satan can often grab hold of and use it to our great detriment, to the harm of those around us, and even to the great harm of our own soul. And David here is urging those who found themselves caught up in this rebellion and, and are now in this United Kingdom, he's urging them to consider, don't let your anger turn you from the Lord, don't let it turn you against righteousness, come and join the faithful worshippers and bring your worship to the Lord. Come worship the Lord. Come enter His place. Come worship Him. God's saying the same thing to us. We especially need to be in worship. We especially need to be in our knees. We especially need to be in prayer before God. When we are so upset, we don't know what to do. Because that's a very dangerous time for us. He calls them sacrifices of righteousness. And this phrase is somewhat difficult. It can be understood in several different ways. But they are to come and join the faithful worshipers in offering their sacrifices of righteousness and, and I think it is translated well in the CSB as sacrifices in righteousness. He urges them to do more than merely bring God's prescribed sacrifice and give that to God. He urges them to offer their sacrifices, their worship from a submissive and obedient and pure heart. And so, too, when we come to worship the Lord corporately, or in our family, or individually... We ought not to come merely because it's what we ought to do. We ought to come with our worship in righteousness from a heart that we offer love and submission and obedience and thanks and praise to our God. Let us never just check off the box. I went to church every 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 Sunday, every Lord's Day this month. I did. I, I was consistent. How did you worship? Was it a sacrifice in righteousness? Was it a sacrifice flowing from your heart? Was it worship and praise that showed the Lord just how greatly you love and adore Him, even when you don't understand what He's doing? That you will submit and obey and follow Him in all situations. Finally, David urges them to trust in the Lord if they were still enemies of God and his king he exhorted them to repent and embrace God as their king and if they did trust in God but they've been mes- misled by Absalom it was time to repent of that and honor God and his appointed king and there are many times in our life when we will face situations that are just beyond what seems to be our ability to trust in the Lord how can i trust in the lord in this situation it's Just not possible. It's just not possible. I have to get out of this situation. God can handle it. Yes, He can. Do everything that you can that is righteous and holy and just, but when you can't do anything more, trust in God. Just keep trusting. He can handle it. Earlier, earlier, We read in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 17 through 5-5, and in it Paul quoted from Psalm 4-4. He quoted this phrase, be angry and do not sin. And he used the very vocabulary and the themes of Psalm 4 in that passage. Paul even applied the message of Psalm 4 in the same way that David applied it here in this psalm. Paul addressed the church at large, the visible Christian church. And writing as God's inspired apostle, Paul called those in the church who did not know Christ to repent and to trust in Him. He called those who did know Christ to reject the world's way of thinking and acting and to walk in submission and love and obedience to Jesus Christ. Remember, he's he's writing to the churches who were not any more perfect than our churches are today. Some of those churches had great struggles, and he had to write to them because of the problems in the church. And he's exhorting them, in their anger, in their upset, to not sin, but to trust the Lord. Paul puts all of us in the shoes of the Israelite, Israelites, after the day of battle. The words of Psalm 2, how long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie, ring in our ears when God says to us through Paul in Ephesians 4.17, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility, that is the emptiness or worthlessness of their thoughts. Paul saying there are many in the church who are still living As Gentiles, that is to say, those who don't know the Lord and their thoughts and their lives are empty and worthless. They're futile because they don't know the Lord and they're not following the Lord. He's exhorting all to follow the Lord. It is true that those who do not know Christ fill their thoughts and lives with all kinds of earthly things. And when life is good, those things can bring happiness to them. But when life is bad... None of those things can bring peace or joy to them. And none of them can help them when they stand before God as their judge. Paul goes on to say in verse 18 that the world's way of thinking darkens one's understanding and excludes one from the spiritual and eternal life that God gives. He adds in verse 19 that it leads into every kind of sinful and impure and destructive behavior. We should hear the words of Psalm 4 two. How how long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? We should hear them ring in our ears when Paul tells us in verses 25 and 29, Therefore put away lying. Speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. And in verse 29, No foul language should come from your mouth but only what is good for building up, not insulting, not tearing down, but building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. We should hear the words of Psalm 4. 4, be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Ring in our ears when God says to us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. God teaches us, through Paul, that we should hear the message that David gives to all Israel and apply this message to ourselves. Some commentators and preachers have said that they do not think that David ever said these words to the people of Israel. Now, it may be that David did not give a speech to all of Israel, but I am positive that all Israel heard these words. The heading to the psalm tells us that David gave this psalm to the choir director at the tabernacle. And 1 Corinthians 23.5 tells us that David appointed 4,000 Levites as singers and musicians to praise the Lord at the tabernacle and temple and to sing these songs of praise and worship and prayer to the Lord. All these 4,000 were divided into 24 divisions that served at different times. But I think it's interesting that that means that they had a choir and an orchestra singing the praises of God all the time that numbered over 150 people. Sort of like the scene in the throne room in heaven, where the very angels of God cover their faces with their wings and constantly call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Constantly giving praise to God. Every Israelite man was required to come to the tabernacle at least three times a year to worship God during the three major feasts, and normally the entire family went. There as they worshipped the Lord, they would have heard the words of this psalm sung. They would have heard God's call to them to reflect on their sinful anger and bitterness, to repent of it, and to trust the Lord. Now, when someone sins against you, what is your reaction? I, I think my reaction is to think how I can... Well, let me, let me go back to early in my life, <laughs> when I was young. So, people respond tend to respond in one of two ways when someone attacks them. They either fight or flight. They either, if they're attacked, they respond by attacking back. If someone says nasty about them, they respond with something nasty back. If you don't believe this, just get on the internet and read a few comments. And you can see how the conversations just go straight downhill. Just straight down. They, They may start out as a very nice conversation, but they just wind their way down until they end up in the pit of hell. Uh, others, others don't do that. They don't respond that way. They're more timid, more shy, and so they just flee. They just run away. And that was my response when I was young. So when somebody insulted me or treated me in a way that I thought was, was nasty, I just said, okay, that's it. I won't talk to them anymore. I won't have anything to do with them anymore. When they talk to me, I'll just walk away from them. I'll just ignore them. I'll just have nothing to do with them. And there was also the temptation to just think about my just anger against them for their sin. My just bitterness against them. Something we all really need to realize is that when someone sins against us, whether it be by what they say or don't say, what they do or they don't do, how they act, their sin never, never justifies us treating them sinfully. We can never say, but don't we all tend to do that? Well, it's right for me to do this, to treat them this way, to treat them sinfully, because they treated me sinfully. Their sin never justifies us ignoring them and having nothing to do with them. Their sin never justifies us being angry at them. Their sin never justifies us being bitter at them. We need to recognize that when we respond with, shall we say, internal anger and bitterness, that we don't even consider sin because we haven't done anything to them. That now we, we have sinned and we need to confess that to God. They may not even know anything about it, but we've sinned and we need to confess that to God. And if we do do things against them, if we do respond to sin with sin, well, then we haven't helped the situation, we've made it worse. Because now, even though they may have sinned against us, we need to go to them and we need to ask their forgiveness for our sin. For the things we've gone around and told other people about. We've we've talked about them behind their back. We need to go to them and ask their forgiveness. When someone sins against us, we're never justified in sinning against them. Rather, God calls us to seek to reconcile with them, to restore the relationship. We do have a right. We do have a responsibility to go to them and rebuke them for their sin. Now... If we're wise, we'll start out not with the rebuke, but with questions to really find out what they meant by what they said before we assume we know what they meant by what they said. It's far easier because when we start with questions, we learn that they did not mean at all what we thought they did. And when we do have a full picture of of what they meant, we can ask them why they feel that way. And we can get a better understanding of how we can approach and deal with their sin and tell them how this did hurt us and we do think that they need to ask for forgiveness and maybe they even need to make something right maybe they've broken or taken something and they need to replace it but we do have a responsibility to go to those where the relationship is broken that we might be restored to our brother and sister that relationship would not end sadly in my experience I've seen so so many Christians in churches that they go along fine until they get into a little tiff with another Christian and rather than ever talk to them or approach them they just leave the church they just are gone But our Savior has given us something precious and valuable. He's given us the steps to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters. But we have to recognize that anger and bitterness are going to be used by Satan. He's going to twist them and use them to keep us from ever going to them. He's going to use that for us to stew in it and feel self-justified. And never right those wrongs and never reconcile those relationships. And that's wrong. What does God say to us when you're angry? Don't sin. Don't even let the sun go down on your anger. Go to the person and resolve it that day, right away. Seek the restoration of that precious relationship before it can never, never be restored. And there is a second teaching here in verses 2 through 5 for us. It is right for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelite. And here these words is addressed to us, but it is also right for us to put ourselves in the shoes of David, the faithful one of God. Even as we strive to be the faithful ones of God and to consider if our attitude towards those who sin against us is the same as David's attitude was towards those who sinned against him. Notice that David never calls them the wicked or enemies. He does not pray for God's judgment on them. He encourages them to reconsider their thoughts and actions. He urges them to reflect on their actions and to trust in the Lord. David has grace for those who have made themselves to be his enemies. He has grace to share with them. He is seeking restoration with them. And Ephesians 4, 32 through 5, 1 tells us why it is so very important that we as Christians do this same thing. It says this to us, And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, Just as God also forgave you in Christ, we did not deserve God's forgiveness, but He forgave us. And His making us His forgiven children means that we are called to become like Him. And that means when others sin against us, we need to go to them and talk to them about it with a heart that is willing and desirous of hearing them ask for forgiveness and granting them a full forgiveness for what they've done against us. Jesus even taught us that we can't pray, Lord, forgive us our sins, if we are not willing to forgive those who have sinned against us. Now that does involve going to them and sharing with them and listening to them. And it does, it does require them to ask for our forgiveness. It does require them to seek to make right the things they've done wrong. But we must seek that out because he desires that we would forgive and restore those relationships. And he goes on to say, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Finally, in verses 6 through 8, God shows us praise to God for his goodness. In verse 6, David says, Many are asking, Who can show us anything good? We've got the skeptics here. There's nothing good. This was true of many in Israel after the heartbreaking events of Israel's civil war, but this is also very true of everyone, everyone, sometime during their life, as they realize that they, the things they've been trusting in for security, for popularity, for success, for wealth, for happiness, for joy, for peace, none of them can guarantee these things. And regarding this universal emptiness in the souls of mankind, David cries out, as we too should, Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. David is alluding to the blessing in Numbers 6, 24-26, and he is asking God to smile on his people, to favor and bless his people, to fill their hearts with peace and joy and holiness. To pour out His grace and holiness on them. And to always be present with them. So that through them, the people of this world may come to discover what is truly good. Namely, knowing God. David says to the Lord in verse 7, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. What a testimony God's people Can give to those who do not know God. There is a greater joy in knowing Jesus than there is in anything that this world has to offer. I love what David Pallison shared in his testimony about how the Lord drew him to himself and showed him that the answers to human woes are not found in the human wisdom that he was being taught in psychiatric practice. Rather, it's found in Christ's wisdom. David Pallison wrote, It is self-evident that every psychiatric disorder describes a person who is profoundly isolated, self-absorbed, and unhappy. But we were forbidden to share with patients the truth that most deeply addresses such human woes. Jesus' mercies to us They draw us out of ourselves. Trusting in Jesus, growing in care for others, and the underlying joy from Jesus are the opposites of all that confounds and confuses our souls. Finally, in verse 8, David again expresses his absolute confidence in God. We do well to take up his words into our minds and hearts and to also make them our confession of our confidence in the Lord so that even in the midst of our concerns about the future, we too may say with David, I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. Let us pray. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, who sent your Son to be our Savior and the Lord of our lives and of this world, we pray that you would remove from our hearts our love and devotion to the empty and worthless things of this world, and that you would place in our hearts a devotion to our Savior, that would flow out abundantly in love for you and for your truth and that would flow out in service and care for others. We pray that you would reveal to us the lies and deception in so much of the world's thinking and replace it with a full and deep understanding of the truths of this world as you have created it and the truths of the gracious redemption that you are creating in our lives. We pray that your word and your spirit would move us to ponder and reflect and see the ways in which our attitudes and words and actions do not bring honor to your name. Grant that our words would not insult others, but would build them up. That we would be able to be kind and compassionate to others and willing and able to forgive those who have sinned against us, even as Christ himself forgave us for our sins against him. Grant that we would be able to walk in love even as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Grant that we would not live in sexual immorality so that we may be numbered among those who inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. All these things we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, man.